This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and relating to this wondrous, crazy world we live in together. This morning, we'll be diving into the paradoxical world of fractals and the fractal dynamics of the human psyche, self-awareness, and how we relate to ourselves and the world around us with my guest, Terry Marks Tarlow. Terry Marks Tarlow was on the show a couple of months ago. Terry is a psychotherapist with 30 years of practice in L.A. She's the author of numerous articles on play and linear science in psychotherapy and the author of several books, including Creativity Inside Out, Clinical Intuition in Psychotherapy, Truly Mindful Coloring, and Psyche's Veil, Psychotherapy, Fractals, and Complexity. She's also co-authoring a new book on play and creativity with Daniel Siegel, which will be coming out later this year in November. Terry, good morning and welcome again to the Magical Mystery Tour. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be asked back. Well, we've been planning this for a while, haven't we? This is true. (laughs) It's true. Yes. So I thought we'd begin by uh, reading something from one of your articles. Sounds good. Chaos and complexity theory reveal new things in nature that are applicable to the human psyche. 
I propose that what we call the self is best conceptualized as an open, complex, dynamical system. With chaos at the core of development, healthy selves self-organize and evolve to the edge of chaos, where they are capable of flexible reorganization in response to unpredictable social and environmental circumstances. The boundaries of the self are dynamically fluid, ever-changing and evolving through recursive feedback loops existing simultaneously at physical, social, cultural, and historical levels. Because multiple states and levels are simultaneously possible, the self can be considered dynamically as a process structure that is fractally organized. Now, for my listeners, don't panic. (laughs) I'm I'm panicking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to read that again slowly, and then we'll, we'll unpack that. There's a lot in there, and we have about 85 minutes to unpack that. And here we go with the second reading. Chaos and complexity theory reveal new things in nature that are applicable to the human psyche. I propose that what we call the self is best conceptualized as an open, complex, dynamical system. With chaos at the core of development, healthy selves self-organize and evolve to the edge of chaos, where they are capable of flexible reorganization in response to unpredictable social and environmental circumstances. The boundaries of the self are dynamically fluid, ever-changing, and evolving through recursive feedback loops existing simultaneously at physical, social, cultural, and historical levels. Because multiple states and levels are simultaneously possible, the self can be considered dynamically as a process structure that is fractally organized. Okay. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about fractals this morning, and we're going to be talking about them in relation to us human beings with psyches and these amazing capabilities that we have, and through the lifelong journey of learning and processing and interrelating with the world around us and each other. So... I thought we could start unpacking that, but there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there, and it's kind of hard to start early in the morning with something like that. <laughs> and I wrote that in 1999, right? That's the self as a dynamical system. Right. Last century. Yeah. Last millennia. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking <Right>. of fractals. <laughs> so it's interesting to revisit how contemporary it sounds to me, so that's a good sign. Yeah. So to begin with, fractals are related to chaos and complexity theory. Yes, and all are part of nonlinear dynamics and very contemporary science that fractal geometry really was invented or discovered, depending on how you think about mathematics, in 1975. And the fractal geometry of nature, which is Mandelbrot's manifesto came out in 1977, and right away 
he identified that fractals were connected with natural shapes in a way that no other mathematics come close. So there's something about nature that's very particular to how fractals are made and especially the recursive symmetry of fractals, the self-similarity of fractals. So fractals are embedded in nature somehow. Fractals are everywhere in nature. (laughs) Yeah, almost everything. I, I have wanted to say that the way fractals are constructed is almost at the level of a law of nature, but it's not a law. It's more like a habit of nature. And over time, I've come to believe that really what they represent is how nature does identity. So the self is our identity as people, but natural forms and shapes wind up having a consistency that's like identity, and I think it's fractals that really constitute that. So the fluffiness of a cloud or the ruggedness of a mountainscape, that kind of thing is what fractals are about. So fractals are a pattern. Fractals are almost the patterning of pattern. <laughs> is one way right. of looking at it in nature, but yes, a they're, they're a pattern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they relate to everything in the universe. Pretty close. They range from the quantum level, quantum chaos, and how molecules shape to the cosmic level of how galaxies cluster, all of that, and then everything in between. And they span patterns in space and patterns in time and patterns in symbolic space, too, which is a really broad scope. But I think the easiest way to think about how fractals are made is that there's a seed shape and then there's um, an algorithm or there's a process that seed shape undergoes and it undergoes the same process over and over on the product of the stage before it. And so one way of of looking at it that's classical, that relates to sacred geometry and things that the ancients knew and thought were really mystical and special about the universe, if you think of the spiral of a seashell, the nautilus shell, and how that grows, and you can, you can get a sense of, of fractals as a process, both a process and a structure, because the same arc of that spiral of the Nautilus maintains the relationship between parts and whole, the parts of it and the whole of it in a mathematical way all the way through its growth. And so that kind of helps us understand how the shell can grow larger and larger, and yet it preserves identity by preserving the relationship between the parts and the whole. And the Fibonacci series um, comes out of that, and that's an ancient series of numbers that sort of shows that relationship between part and whole being preserved. And very simply, in those numbers, it's just adding the two terms, two previous terms. So it's one, one, two, three, five, eight, etc. And if you divide each number into its successor, you get the golden mean, 
which is that mm-hmm. very magical number that mm-hmm. ancient and so, and as that series gets larger and larger, the number gets closer and closer. And so that's a fractal. It's a self-similar series, and it is an example of, of a fractal progression. And that repeats itself over and over again throughout nature. That series does. It's in everything from how leaves twist around trees to sunflower seeds and this sort of thing. But, you know, it's one example but then there are a zillion other examples. And I would say probably in some ways the most basic fractal shape is a period doubling, which goes like a branching, a kind of a branching shape mm-hmm. in trees. So the way that a trunk branches into two main sections and each of those branch into two more and two more upon that and that sort of thing. That's a really easy way of visualizing how that initial branch keeps repeating itself on smaller and smaller scales to make the tree. And then what's different about nature from that as a rigid linear formula is that some chaos is thrown in in nature, so it shifts it up a little bit. It'll bend it this way or that way, or instead of two, there might be three or that sort of thing. So it makes it irregular in a way that is different from just exactly repeating over and over again, and that's kind of where the chaos comes in. It's the same algorithm, but the winds of chance are blowing in different directions and change it up just a little bit at each stage. And that branching shape is not only pattern of trees, it's the pattern of rivers as they arc through the landscape. It's the pattern of the circulatory system inside our bodies. It's the pattern of neuron branching or lungs branching. So that same way of making pattern really is is in our bodies everywhere and it's in nature everywhere and so that that's a that's a really basic one that branching. So let's get back to fractals in terms of the human psyche and and continuing in the unpacking of that opening piece, you say the self is best conceptualized as an open, complex, dynamical system. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. You know, a classical Cartesian way of looking at the self is that it's encased inside our bodies or inside our brains and that our bodies somehow encase us as physical beings and separate, our skin separates us from the environment. But that's actually a bit of an illusion because even the skin is an open system that breathes and the skin has a fractal part to it with the sweat pores and leopard spots and wrinkles, all of that has a fractal shape. And so the skin breathes we breathe, you know, we're, we're open systems because we have to take in oxygen and we take in food and we take in emotional nourishment and communication. And 
so there's a continual exchange from inside to outside that is really what sustains and keeps our shape. And it's as true for our minds and our beings as it is for our bodies. So, that, so that's the openness of ourselves. And we have social brains and we're social beings. We can't exist. A baby that isn't touched and held will die just as readily as as a baby who isn't fed. And so that's part of the openness is this continual exchange from inside to outside. And one way of thinking of the fractal seed of self is as there's a a lot of religions believe that we're born with a soul and that the soul sort of comes in whole to us. And you can think of the soul as the fractal shape of self that whether you want to think of it as genetically, having a genetic shape that's then subject to interaction in the environment to to come out with its final form. Hillman, who is a, a union psychologist, has this acorn theory of the soul. It's very much of a fractal theory just like the the whole tree is embedded in the acorn, so is the whole self embedded in the soul or, to use the language we're using here, so is the whole self embedded in this fractal shape of identity that is not fixed but is open to being shaped by experience. And now we have this whole burgeoning field of epigenetics, which is really how much nurture shapes nature. So that the idea of a process structure is how the very shaping of those interactions wind up crystallizing the form. And the form is dynamically changing all the time. So there's something about ourselves that stays familiar because we're able to identify one another and it's hard to say what it is about personality or about character or about another person that we recognize but we absolutely do and yet we're changing all the time everything about us changes all the time even though our minds tend to reify things and make them look like they're much more solid than they actually are from a physics or physical point of view. And then continuing with chaos at the core of development, healthy selves self-organize and evolve to the edge of chaos. Yeah, so that's a very interesting, that's the, the, the role of chaos and development and the role of chaos in things has, it has this, you know, this has this biblical sense of first there was chaos and then there was order. But in some ways, we've forgotten that when we, from a linear point of view or linear science, we've put such an emphasis on order and order coming first, and yet disorder comes first. It's almost like sculpting, taking a slab of stone and then sculpting the self out of that or sculpting development out of the disorder first. So... One way of thinking of that, if you imagine an infant who's just been born 
and you look at that infant's body, it sort of flails all over the place. You know, the movements are not coordinated and they're not constrained in any organized way. And there is a lot of chaos that's true in the motor system and it's true in a sensory sense of how an infant might move its eyes. And over time, there's a sculpting down from like a higher dimensional chaos to a lower dimensional order that constrains the chaos. And that's true in the brain too. And one way of of understanding that is impulse control, that little kids don't have much control over their impulses. They just sort of do and say what's on their minds and they can't always sit still. And so the impulsive self that acts has more chaos than self-control, which constrains or inhibits. So inhibition is actually the shaping force both over behavior and in the brain as well. It's inhibition that winds up really shaping order in the brain as well. And there's a pruning of synapses. There's an overproduction of synapses in the brain in an infant. And there's this period of massive pruning down. And there's a second period of massive pruning down in, during adolescence as well. And all of that is a way that chaos gets constrained in the brain. And so the edge of chaos piece is where the action is everywhere in the universe. I mean, that's where there's enough disorder to allow for creativity, to allow for communication, to allow for movement and transportation of things, but there's enough order to to constrain the chaos, and it's sort of the ideal magic spot that allows both consistency and change to happen. And so the edge of chaos, or another way of putting it is, self-organized criticality, depending on which scientists you're talking to, but the brain organizes to the edge of chaos. So you might think looking at a brain scan, for example, that brain scans kind of capture dynamics and freeze them. And you might think that, you know, just one structure is being used when we do this or that, because that's what those brain scans are going for. But in actuality, the brain is firing all the time. It's just massively firing. And so it moves to that edge of chaos with what looks like sort of random firing, but it's not exactly random. It's more edge of chaos dynamics. It's like a point of creative tension in motion, in action. Yeah. Yeah, so so less a point and more a zone. It's really a zone of creative. Right, more tension. more of a wave than a point. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a line. Like fractals are often perceived as borders or boundaries. Yeah, and exactly the action on a fractal is is very much at the boundary. So you mentioned the Mandelbrot set, which is the granddaddy of all fractals, and that was the formula iterated for the first time on the computer, meaning that its end products were fed back into the beginning, and when it's iterated for every point on the complex number plane, 
there's the, in the traditional Mandelbrot set, which people can look at, a Mandelbrot Zoom on their computers on YouTube, which is fun to look at. The black part is the ordered part. The white part is where the equation rushes off to infinity or rushes at various speeds to infinity. And it's the edge of the Mandelbrot that has the complexity and that's infinitely deep. So you can use the computer like a microscope to zoom in and there's pattern everywhere and the pattern emerges unpredictably yet it's self-similar by returning to the shape of the hull in various places as you go. And it almost, it's a very much like a psychedelic trip to look at a fractal zoom. Yeah, they are spectacular. They are. It is spectacular. And now they're, they've got the mandel bulb, and so you can look at a four-dimensional one. It's, it's kind of crazy what can be visualized with the power of computer of computation today. When I first heard about a quaternion, which is a four-dimensional fractal, it took computers something like three days to produce the shape. And now... There's all kinds of things. There are even virtual reality glasses that can take you into four-dimensional fractal worlds, which is sort of crazy. But back to what you were saying, the fractals all have this incredible complexity right at their edges. And so one way, going back to our inner landscapes, one of the paradoxes about a fractal that is mathematically produced is that the closer you look at it, the more there is to see. So the more you zoom in on it, the more information emerges. And that kind of paradox is very different than, you know, it's something that self-reflection has a similar quality to it, where the more we meditate or the more we contemplate, the more emerges from that, the more detail is possible. But that's not a normal process. Like, the more you zoom in on the edge of a table, the less you see, (laughs) because you've reached its edge. And you don't reach the edge of a fractal. It just keeps getting more complex. And it's a lovely paradox because there's a finite boundary to fractal shapes, and yet there's an infinite depth at the same time. And isn't that very much like... Because it goes on forever. It goes on forever. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting stuff. So getting back to how it relates to us, continuing, you write, healthy selves self-organize and evolve to the edge of chaos where... They are capable of flexible reorganization in response to unpredictable social and environmental circumstances. So we're talking about how we learn when we come up against the edge of chaos. Right, yeah. We're talking about how we learn, how we change, how we embody change, how change embodies us, how we bend and expand, and flexibility is the healthiest shape. Mm-hmm. of a self. And again, that's right right in that middle zone between too much disorder and too much rigidity. Mm. And it's very different looking at it from the point of view of health, either physical health or mental health. 
um, is interesting because we used to, in looking at old psychological tests and this sort of thing, or even concepts, we tend to think that regularity and predictability is healthy, like having a regular heartbeat. But it turns out that that's not true, that too much regularity is actually rigidity and is not healthy at all, that the body needs a little bit of chaos, a little bit of unpredictability to be healthy. And that even includes heartbeats, includes breathing rate, and includes every function of the body. It's only at a large scale that it appears to be regular. It's almost regular, but not quite. And so that flexibility, that bendability is the healthy state. And you can think about different problems psychologically as either being along the scale of too much disorder, like, say, a psychotic process or a borderline personality with highly dysregulated emotion where your person may be bouncing back and forth between different feelings and unable to calm down or a PTSD, you know, again, too much disorder or too much regularity like an obsessive compulsive process where a person can't stand novelty and has to keep repeating either the same worry over and over again in the mind or the same behavior over and over again in an attempt to calm down. To avoid chaos, to avoid the unknown. To avoid chaos, exactly, to avoid chaos. And yet we have to let some chaos in in order to really be open to change, open to novelty, open to creativity. And in order to learn and to grow. In order to learn and grow. And learn and grow as a lifelong process, not just something that happens early. Right. Which is coming to the area of play, which is why we play all the way through the lifespan. And why it's so important to play. Play is is like an embodiment of flexibility. Exactly. And play came into evolution as a way of opening up the wiring of our brains, bodies, and minds. So play was the very first way and the most important and probably the most complex way that we open up the wiring to be flexible and to learn and grow rather than to have a fixed pattern of behavior in response to fixed stimuli that come in from the environment. It's kind of like how we we shift over to the realm of complexity. Exactly. And in terms of of organisms, I would say going from simplicity, you know, of, of just an organism that does only a few things, and I'm, I'm talking about evolutionarily, mm-hmm. only a few things in response to very fixed patterns of, of input, but to be able to do very different things, more complex things. Yeah, play was the motivational, emotional circuit that changed everything, along with the care circuit, and they do go hand in hand, the care circuit and the play circuit, and the panic circuit, by the way, which is really separation anxiety. So at the point in evolution that parents started to actually pay attention and care about their offspring is exactly the point in time that the play circuit came into being. And 
if you look at evolution and how the play circuit operates in different species, in us, it's gotten longer and longer. Children launch much, much later than any other species. And interesting to me, culturally, our children, as society gets ever more complex, our children in the Western world appear to be launching even later. That may be partly a healthy thing. I think sometimes we, we want to think of that as an unhealthy thing in the sense that they can't take care of themselves, but it may be a healthy thing in the sense of they might need more preparation in order to launch because of the complexity of society. It's probably some combination. I thought it was interesting that you connected what you call the play circuit with the care circuit, and that really makes a lot of sense because when we're playing, we're, we're essentially opening ourselves up to our environment and to others in our environment. Exactly, exactly. In an open, curious sort of a way. And you're probably familiar with the work of Barbara Fredrickson. Uh-huh, sure. She, she talks a lot about how when we're in an open, positive state, our visual acuity actually opens up. And when we're in a fearful contracted state, our visual acuity actually con- shrinks and contracts. So curiosity yep. and play are the expression of openness in relation to our environment. That's exactly, that's exactly true. So her broaden and build idea about positive emotion, play is a generator of positive emotion. Not just positive emotion, but positive, as you're, as you're saying, curiosity passion, interest, joy, all of those and emotions. Motive, and connection. Connection's and a connection. big part of that because she, she was actually talking about it in terms of, she used the term love 2.0 mm-hmm. to move away from the romantic notion of love, but love as, as a sense of openness and connectivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and connection is key. Connection both to the world embracing the world, and social connection. And, of course, play is the primary way that children learn how to socialize with one another and learn the rules and the roles and the relationship of society through practicing. And that's one way of looking at fractals. You can think of, I mean, just think of, like, little miniature. I I just got back from Amsterdam and went to the Rijksmuseum. I was absolutely enthralled by the tiny little dollhouses. Actually, they were not tiny little. They were huge, but they had all these miniatures in them. And in looking at those little, all those little miniatures and how carefully they're constructed, they're like little fractal representations of those objects in society. And children love little miniature things, and they love to play with fractal objects. Just think about nesting cups. One Mm -hmm. cup goes inside the other. It's the same shape, and it's self-similar, and same shape on different scales, or or Russian dolls. Or how little girls like to play with baby dolls. With dolls, right, exactly. To to mimic their mothers with babies, yeah. Exactly, although what's interesting is they're not exactly mimicking, because they're creating the whole world. They're creating their own story, their own version of it. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that's the fractal, you know, that's it's where a, it's, it's a new, similar but different. Right, it's a new iteration. 
It's a new iteration. It's a new iteration. It, it, another interesting thing about play is that, you know, there are a lot of theories about what is the function of play, and it's easy to dismiss it as frivolous when it turns out it's actually <laughs> fundamental. It builds everything, and it's the cutting edge of growth for children. And one of the theories about its function was that play is a way of practicing adult skills. And that's true, like what we were just talking about, but it's also a way of expanding emotional tolerance and the window of emotional tolerance, which makes us flexible. So a story that I like to tell about that is a couple of play researchers in the jungle, Pellis and Pellis, were observing juvenile monkeys, a band of Pata's monkeys who were one by one climbing up a tree and climbing out the end of a branch and then jumping off one by one. But if they were just practicing adult skills, they would have landed on their feet because if you're being chased by, by an animal or whatever, you're going to want to land on your feet and run away. But instead, what they were doing was belly flopping. Each one was belly flopping one after another. And they couldn't make sense. Why were they doing that? Especially because it's painful. And it turned out that what they theorized is that it was a way of teaching that sometimes it hurts to have fun. And that's true. If, if we're going to broaden and build, as Fredrickson says, and expand our world through play, sometimes we're going to fall. And sometimes kids are going to push themselves. Just look at how kids push themselves to the edges where adults don't want to go. They will buy spinning and turning and jumping off of swings and getting hurt and getting dirty and, you know, doing all of these things, pushing themselves into disequilibrium instead of a pushing away from that. And that's a way that they're, they're playing with those edges of chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, deliberately. Deliberately. Openly, with curiosity. With curiosity. And fascination. Openly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So continuing... And this could be a way of defining play and the purpose of it. The boundaries of the self are dynamically fluid and ever-changing, mediated by complex, recursive feedback loops existing simultaneously at physical, social, cultural, and historical levels. Mm -hmm. So that's a big one to, yeah, to unpack. That is um, a big one. What comes to me, though, about it is that because our conscious minds are, you know, we have a stream of consciousness and it moves from one thing to another, but it's only a single line, our conscious minds. And so we don't tend to think in terms of these multiple levels all going on at once. So we've got, you know, this physical level where our bodies, physiological levels where our bodies are processing our food and are fighting cancer cells. And we've got these multiple levels that exist simultaneously. Every time we turn on the radio, every time we look at our internet, we've got this cultural influence at a point in time in history that affects how we understand things. So it's embedded, just like our bodies are like a fractal clock with each organ operating on its own time scale and having its own intrinsic dynamics that cycle through. 
so our digestive system cycles through at a different rate than our heartbeats or our brains and the subcortical areas of our brains move faster than our conscious cortical areas of, of the brain and it's like a, a series of nested circles if you want or cycles and same thing with the influences on who we are and how we are in the world and all of it's going on simultaneously and we're processing it all simultaneously but most of that processing does not happen at a conscious level and at a conscious level we just make up this story about what's going on mm-hmm. and it's a very narrow story compared to this much richer level of openness let's get into the recursive feedback loops that we tend to get into and and why they happen and and what their function is the recursive feedback loop that's this idea that when I was talking about the Nautilus shell, you know, how it builds on itself, that we keep building on ourselves, we keep building on what our history, our entire history is enfolded in each moment and could be unpacked in each moment. And that's the recursive feedback loop that each point in time, we are very, very sensitively dependent on that and what direction we go will depend on the entire history. And each new moment becomes the next launching point. And it's a circular process by which we keep folding, refolding in what's happened before in order to unfold where we go next. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So at the same time, it's building a sense of stability and and continuity and identity, and yet with each foray out into the world, we're having a new experience that we then kind of bring back inside to assimilate and integrate. Yes, exactly. To then reach back out into the world and do it all all over again. And, And that's what we do through life is we continually are doing that. And we do that at the level of our senses, We do that at the level of our awareness. We do that everywhere. We do it socially. We do it with people. We do it it in nature. We do it with ourselves as well. We do it with ourselves as well. We do it and even think of sleep-wake cycles as a way of doing that where we go out into the world and then we fold it back in and consolidate it at night and through dreams. I think dreams, by the way, are a good place to understand those simultaneous loops of meaning, you know, how they're parallel things instead of just one thing. So when we have a dream, every time we return to it, we can gather new meaning from it, especially if it's an important dream. And the meaning changes depending on who we are when we look at it. Mm. So we bring more into it each time and are able to get more out of it by bringing more into it. And that understanding builds from each time before. So that's a good place to sort of see that recursive cycle. I can give you an example from my own childhood if you want. Sure. When I was younger, I grew up in New Jersey, and my dad would commute to New York City. And I had a dream one night, a fractal dream. I think this is kind of an interesting way of looking at the role of fractals in my own psyche. When I was about probably five or six, 
I had this dream that I was in my bedroom at night looking out the window and the Statue of Liberty was sort of stomping across the landscape from New York City coming to get me. And it scared me, and what I did in the dream was line up my stuffed animals across the windowsill and dive under the covers and go to sleep. And then in the morning of the dream, the doorbell rang, and I went downstairs, opened the door. There was no one outside, but when I looked outside my front door, a little miniature Statue of Liberty was there. And I picked her up and brought her inside, closed the door, and that was the end of the dream. And this was way before fractals in the 60s. This was before fractals were even known. But there's a fractal structure to that dream. There are at least three levels of the Statue of Liberty. There's the one of my dad working in New York City. There was the monster Statue of Liberty coming to get me. And then there was the little mini one that I brought inside. And I have looked at that dream over and over, over the years, and especially as I was training to be a psychologist, there are so many different ways I looked at it. I could look at it as my mother and some ambivalent feelings about her. I could look at it as some ambivalence that I have felt about being a woman. I can look at it as being threatened by my own liberty and my own creativity. And all of that is true. All of it has meaning, and that meaning exists on different scales of who I am. And so every time that I go back in and mine the dream, I come out with a different treasure. And the resolution of the dream at first scared me and... As I said, I lined up my stuffed animals. So you can look at that as I was attempting to ward off the chaos of that Statue of Liberty coming to get me by creating a straight line across my windowsill with the animals that were there to protect me. So I was trying to use order to ward off the disorder. But then by diving under the covers, I was also trying to ignore the problem. You know, I can look at my own defenses by how I was dealing with the threat. But in the end, I was able to incorporate that Statue of Liberty. I was able to bring her inside. And, of course, the house is a classic symbol of the self in Jungian terms. And so by bringing her inside, I could incorporate her. I could incorporate what at first was too scary for me to handle. And that sequence of wanting to sort of venture out into new places and exercise my openness and my liberty, being terrified of what that would bring me and then being able to handle it ultimately and tame it in myself and in my own work has happened again and again in a a fractal sort of way for me, including my discovery of fractals and my terror in some ways about not understanding them and then the process of just spending a really long time trying to understand them at, at all levels and trying to understand why they have been so intriguing to me over time. And to me, it's fascinating that I could have a fractal. Not only that's not the only fractal seed of 
this interest in my childhood, but there are many others, including when I discovered, mine was probably in sixth grade, when I discovered the idea of infinity. The way that I visualized that was as, as a universe in the shoebox of a giant in the giant's closet, which is embedded in another shoebox of a, yet a larger giant in a closet, etc., all the way up. And so I had a fractal image of universes and shoeboxes in closets um, embedded one in the other. So that's a fractal image of infinity. And when I was on the playground of my elementary school, would look down and see these tiny little plants and think of myself as a giant that was hovering over this other universe that enfolded tiny universe that was peopled as well. And so all of those things were visions of fractals when I was a child. That probably is why I got so fascinated and curious go back to the Frederick language and, you know, sort of wanted to play in, in the realm. I did play in the realm of fractals as a child and continue to play in that realm now. Hmm. And I'm speaking with Terry Marks Tarlow here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. We're talking about fractals and... I also had numerous experiences of fractals and infinity as a child. Oh, really? What were, what were yours? There was a period of time, roughly around the age of 9 and 10, where I was having these experiences in that hypnagogic state between waking and, and going to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I would have these recurring experiences of infinity, where I was... It was as if I was, my awareness was traveling down a fractal border mm. endlessly in these incomprehensible patterns. Visual, visual patterns. Visual patterns. Mm-hmm. But I felt them. You, so it was like a, a body experience, a it was, somatic experience it was a, that you were traveling yes. in it. I was on it. I was like riding the wave of it. Mm-hmm, and it, mm-hmm. And it just never ended. Obviously, it ended, but I was in the throes of the sense of infinity of it. And I also used to have these experiences of expanding to the size of the universe and then shrinking down to infinitesimally tiny, tiny mm. states and, mm. and experiencing being like a tiny particle in endless space down at that subatomic mm-hmm. level. So you were playing with infinity both as, as infinitely large and infinitely small. Right. It was, it was an experience that just happened to me spontaneously. I've done meditations where we were supposed to have that experience, but when I try to do it, I never had that experience. But these were spontaneous experiences where I actually felt it in, an, in a somatic way. And, I, mm. and this was in a waking state, and the last time it happened, I happened to be with my girlfriend, and I, I narrated the whole thing to her while it was happening. Wow. So that you've had that happen recently. Um, no, this was about 40 years ago. <laughs> oh, but, but when you were an adult, you, had, yes. you still had it. Yeah, I was 18 years old when the last time it happened. Wow. Wow. So during adolescence. 
you yeah. basically when yeah. your brain was going undergoing that major pruning thing. Well, the role of infinity in fractals is really interesting because, and this is something I've, I'm just writing about now. I'm working on a paper for the International Journal of Transpersonal Psychology using fractals as an epistemology for transpersonal phenomena. And the role of infinity in fractals is a big part of of what's so profound about them because they exist between ordinary dimensions. And that betweenness is infinitely deep. So it's the infinite part that is so paradoxical and interesting about them. And so it's like you took a you you were taking a fractal zoom ride really mm-hmm. both up and down in scale. Another thing about that infinite space between dimensions mm-hmm. is that it seems that everything emerges from those spaces. Exactly. The spaces between things where everything emerges. Right. Yeah. It's as if everything on either side of the space are like nouns, and the space between is this pregnant verb. Oh, nicely put. Very poetic, yeah. And in the Buddhist tradition, they have the concept of the bardo, which applies very fractally (laughs) to everything, to everything that we can conceive of. That's right. Yeah, and on all levels. It's the space between lives in Buddhist philosophy, right? In terms of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but it also applies to the space between the in-breath and the out-breath, the space between people, the space between thoughts, any place that there is a space between things. Mm -hmm. And so it's very fractal. It's totally fractal. But I want to get into this notion of how fractals both embody the boundary between things and also the interconnection of things. Well, one of the paradoxes is how a fractal boundary both separates and connects at the same time. So the separate part is, you could say, is identity. It, there is a, a way that there's an inner integrity to the space, and yet the connect place is the way in which there's an openness to everything outside of it. And when a fractal is a boundary, it's often a boundary condition between things. And I tend to think that it's a boundary condition between many things like inner subjectivity and objectivity or mind and brain or self and other. Mm -hmm. And when a fractal occupies that space between, there's an interpenetration between the two sides where the whole of both sides is enfolded in the very boundary condition. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, exactly. It's very much like the way we interact with the world around us. Right. So I'm in the world, but at the same time, the world is in me. Right, exactly. And it's fully, fully interpenetrating. And that's true in our relationships, too, that I'm in you and you're in me in this interpenetrating way that is very different than how we ordinarily separate things or think about things as being separate. Yeah, there's this thing about how there are certain cultures that talk about how we cannot define ourselves 
without thinking of ourselves as part of everything else, that we can't right. define ourselves in a way that's separate. We can't identify ourselves as something separate from everything around us, that we are integrally related and interconnected with everything and that it's part of who we are fundamentally. Right, and you mentioned Buddhist culture and that probably is the prototypical one that I know of, and I'm sure there are others, but that's the one I'm more familiar with that talks about this and and talks about no self, really. Right. There's a quote that you have in your book, Psyche's Veil, from a 13th century Zen master. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken to all things. Yes, that does it all, doesn't it? It does. And a way of tying that back to fractals is the concept of Indra's net, which is a beautiful fractal image of Indra spreading a net whose interstices, is that how you say it? The point of, of the net, where the net comes together, has pearls, and the pearls, each pearl reflects every other pearl in the net. So that's like ourselves. Each one of us reflects everyone else so that we all reflect the all of everything and can't be separated from it. Right. That's the other aspect of fractals of the whole being in each part reflected. Right. right. Have you looked into the holographic concept, the holographic universe concept? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which is a, a, a fractal thing. That's um, yeah. Prebrum. Right, Carl Prebrum. I read a book titled The Holographic Universe about 25, 26 years ago that really opened my mind to all of this stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the one difference, or one difference between a hologram, in a hologram... You can use a part to generate the whole, but it's static. Mm. You know, yeah. It's a static image, whereas a fractal is more dynamic. Yeah, that's a great distinction. The holographic thing is static, is, is a noun, as opposed to the, 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 verb. the yeah. verb, the wave-like nature of fractals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which I think is really critically important. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. something about the English language that tends to collapse things into nouns. Right, and reify things. Yeah. And to privilege order. Right. Privilege order over the disorder or a stasis over movement. Right, and one of the ways you privilege order over chaos is you collapse the chaos into a static point. Exactly. And riding the wave can be very dangerous, but as surfers know, it can be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's thrilling. So you can stay home in bed safely under the covers, but you probably won't have a lot of fun. That's right. (laughs) I use that metaphor, riding the waves, a lot with people in terms of just having both understanding that we don't control anything. We don't control anything in nature. We don't control our bodies. We don't control other people. We have to ride the waves. And the more we embrace that and let the waves be the waves and develop a relationship with them and recognize we can't control the waves, we can only ride them. The more we have that 
understanding of every part of our lives, including our bodies and especially our relationships, the healthier and more flexible we can be and the more fun we can have for sure. And fractals are a kind of embodiment of uncertainty. And I think back to the Rilke poem that you have in Psyche's Veil, where it talks about how the answer cannot be given. It must be lived, and in order to live it, it must emerge through living the question. Yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> I'm just paraphrasing the poem. Uh-huh. But again, it's, it's, so true. Yeah, it's, it's living, it's riding the wave, it's living the conundrum. And riding the wave in that sense means surrendering to not knowing. Mm-hmm. Surrendering to not knowing what's going to happen. And that's the self-organizing piece of it, is that the order will emerge from the surrendering into the whole, but we can't know it ahead of time, and trying to know it gets us into trouble. Right. We have to live it fully in the present, through the present moment. Exactly. And the more we surrender into that in an open way, the more resources we bring in to engage fully, which goes back to the Fredrickson curiosity, openness, passion, passionate engagement. And that's a really difficult thing for us to do as we're traversing through this human life, because we have this thing called an ego, which seeks uh, a sense of security and certainty and control. Mm-hmm. And we have to wrestle with that. Therein lies another paradox that we have to wrestle with in our lives continually. Absolutely. And how do you see that as a paradox? Well, because I think we are naturally motivated and inclined towards expansion and growth and openness and curiosity. And yet we have this ego structure, which is actually moving in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's trying to preserve itself, trying to maintain a static sense of identity and and Mm -hmm. safety and Mm -hmm. security and immortality. (laughs) Right. And so it it is a dance between those two poles. And the wrestling with the ego is, you know, we can wrestle with it, we can dance with it, (laughs) you know, a whole bunch of different stances we can take in relationship to it, depending on how aggressive we need to be to how out of control it is in an right. attempt to bring control, exactly. to be in control, yeah. which is the paradox too, right? Right, because egos tend to create a lot of chaos in its attempt to prevent chaos. Exactly. <laughs> which is pretty funny. Which is really funny. Well, and all the paradoxes are funny, which is probably why the Dalai Lama loves to laugh. You know, because it's kind of, there's a perversion about these paradoxes that make them funny and that tell us we shouldn't hold too tightly, just like we're not supposed to, you know, with the ego, we don't want to hold on too tightly. And that reminds me of another thing about comedy and that comedians often use comedy to broach topics that under normal circumstances we cannot talk about. Mm-hmm. because of various social, cultural stigmas that we mm-hmm. tend to get bound into socially. Mm-hmm. And yet, through laughter, through 
humor through comedy we bust out of like out into a new dimension or out into that space between Mm -hmm. those constraints Mm -hmm. that's true and humor is a form of play exactly and so it makes sense that humor allows us to be more open and in a sense to break rules without breaking them Mm -hmm. there's a line that i really like that you wrote nature abhors a vacuum but adores a fractal no thank you Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's such a beautiful line. What what did that mean for you? To me, a vacuum is a closed space. So the Descartian idea that our bodies enclose us somehow inside where the boundary truly separates and doesn't connect is what I meant by a vacuum. And the fractal borders are the opposite of that where there's an openness and a closedness at the same time. So it's like our escape route is built into the fractal. In a sense. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. What did it mean to you to read? What stands out to you about it? It was just a beautiful line. It's a beautiful, symmetric, and very simple, clear line. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you grasp it intuitively or you right. don't. It, mm-hmm. it yeah. impacts itself in a sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nature adores a fractal, and I adore a fractal. <laughs> like, there's a symmetry there, too, because I'm describing both nature, but I'm also describing myself, and that's a recursive symmetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a quote, partial quote here from Lewis Kaufman. Any distinction is wholly I-maginary, that's spelled E-Y-E, as in our seeing eye, I-maginary, an act of creation, an act of the imagination. It is all imaginary, and only the imaginary is real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's another one of those paradoxical mm-hmm. things that you have to grasp intuitively, Mm-hmm. And I love that, but mm-hmm. I would like to hear you unpack that some. Well, I can unpack that on multiple levels. Kaufman is a mathematician at a university that's in Chicago. I'm not sure it's the University of Chicago. And he is the world's foremost expert on topography and some of the kinds of recursive symmetries that of fractals. And so one way of unpacking that is that fractals are iterated on the imaginary plane mathematically. So the relationship between the imaginary world of mathematics and the real world is one place that we can unpack that sort of interpenetrating thing. There's this idea of the um, sort of crazy way that mathematics describe the real world and how does that happen that this made up universe of numbers in abstract space how does that penetrate real space where these formulas actually fit so precisely so that's one place another way to unpack it from our brain's point of view that's really interesting is that the same parts of the brain that we use to perceive reality are also the parts of the brain we use to imagine. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
Right. I think reality and the imaginary are very, very closely related and in that fractal way are not really distinctly separate. separate. Yeah. Right. They definitely have fractal borders. Right. And they interpenetrate each other. And they interpenetrate, exactly. And when we look at, you know, that, that our st- we make up our world through our, how we narrate our experience. Right. Through that, a continual interaction of our experience of the real world and our imagination, imaginal response to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're both creating our worlds and reflecting our worlds. It's partly imaginary and partly real. And it's happening in a continually recursive way. Exactly. So we're always bringing something new to the dance, and we're always observing something new in response to our response to it. Exactly. And That's it, a good way of, of describing the recursive quality. We're responding to our own responses as much as we're responding to what we perceive outside of us. And we're doing it continually with each other, with everything, and everybody else is doing the same thing as well, all at the same time. And it's exactly. highly complex. Exactly. Infinitely complex. <laughs> it's infinitely complex and infinitely dynamic. And it is like a dance between inner and outer worlds continually. So the real and the imaginary are in this fractal boundary condition with one another that can't be separated and yet are separate in other ways. Yes, and on an imaginal level, we can create distinctions of separation. <laughs> right. Which, once we understand that we're doing that, we can undo as well. Mm-hmm. In a wave-like way, huh? Right. In the ocean, there are distinctions of waves, but there's really no separation. Mm-hmm. And exactly. If we, and if we look at life in terms of energy and waveforms as opposed to collapse particle, particle mm-hmm. states, mm-hmm. then we can have a, an entirely different relationship with life and with ourselves and mm-hmm. everything around us and everyone mm-hmm. in our lives, even. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I think we can unpack that. Everything you just said fits beautifully into what you read of Kaufman's statement, doesn't it? Yeah. It's really incredibly fascinating. And as you originally intuited, fractals are incredibly profound and fascinating. And it's taken us to the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> and we could go in for infinitely longer if we wanted to, couldn't we? Definitely. Yeah, there's so much more. And yet that we did the whole thing. Yeah, I think we covered the main things. I do too, and I had fun doing it. I had tons of fun doing it. I'm so delighted to have had you on again. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tonio, and I hope that the listeners have enjoyed the session as well. I hope so too. So until next time, have a wonderful week, all of you out there. And again, Terry Marks Tarlow, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, My pleasure, and thank you, Tonio. And be well and enjoy this wondrous, crazy world we live in. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening.